Did you see the Grinch on the front page of the uh, Sunday paper? Has a picture of a, a thief coming into the porch and then leaving with a great big package that he's stolen. And it calls him a Grinch. So we're talking about Grinches this holiday season through the Advent season. And we're dealing today with the Grinch of giving up. We have four more to go. Now, the poem that you've just heard read, which is patterned after How the Grinch Stole Christmas, was written by Christy Gibson. So she is the writer of this uh, poem that uh, Trinity and Andy read for us, uh, two of our children. And I thought that was really good, Christy, so good job. All right. I'm in Galatians chapter 6. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to read the first verse of the passage because the crew from the Oz, these are the folks who every week serve 150, sometimes more, sometimes a few less, 150 hot meals to our traditional homeless and, uh, and the folks who are in a program there at the Ozanam Inn. And I am grateful for them and for the class, Beth Aiken's Bible class is so deeply involved as well as other uh, small groups that are working to help us do the feeding ministry. And each time we do the Advent wreath this year, we're going to be featuring one of our Care Effect teams. All right? Now here's what the first verse of Galatians chapter 6 says. Remember, I am finishing up Galatians by starting a new series. Grinches that steal Christmas. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you may also be tempted. I think we're dealing today with an issue that often is happening in the hearts of believers. I think the temptation to give up the good fight of faith confronts us on a daily basis. And for some of you, this message from Galatians chapter 6 comes at just the right time because you've been dealing with this in a very personal way. You've had problems or difficulties, a surprising conflict has come into your life, some tragedy, some sorrow, and you have felt like giving up. Well, today I want to encourage you not to give up, all right? Because it's a Grinch that steals Christmas. And not just Christmas, it steals joy and hope and faith. You cannot give up on the good fight of faith without losing so much in your own soul. Do not give up on others. That may be the first temptation that you have, is to give up on other people around you. I was discussing something with someone here this last week and they went into this passionate speech about the bunny friend shootings. Excuse me. And there were 17 people shot at the bunny friend playground you may not realize that this congregation went to the Bunny Friend playground when it was a mess. 
and we started working on the Bunny Friend Playground. We did so because it was right next to the Baptist Crossroads project where we built 91 homes. If you go six blocks east from the Bunny Friend Playground, you run right through what's now called Musician's Village. And there was a day when on Alvar Street, six blocks from Bunny Friend, we raised the walls of 10 new homes. How many of you were there that day? See your hands. Put your hands way up, okay? Well, we can't hear about the Bunny Friend playground shootings without wondering about the efficiency and effectiveness of our work in the Upper Ninth Ward, where we as a congregation have been since it was the scene of 19 murders. The Florida housing community had 19 murders in its own area in 1991 when there were 400 murders in this city that prompted this congregation before I was pastor to get out there to the upper ninth ward and begin to do a kids club, Bible studies, all kinds of things. It was in the Florida housing community where Janet and I were delivering presents on Christmas that we came across this what I would describe as a concrete box on the brick side of the Florida housing community that still had not been destroyed and there were people living in there and when we knocked in the door a bunch of children answered the door and their faces filled the gap and I noticed that every window in that apartment was covered by plywood and the children had no furniture they were sleeping on pallets on the concrete floor and it didn't feel like there were utilities in that apartment and it was that experience that began to stir my heart about, should we do something else? Should we step up our game in the Ninth Ward and start building homes for these working families that deserved an opportunity at home ownership? And so the Baptist Crossroads Project came out of right there. And when I hear about 17 people shot in the Bunny Friend playground. I think about the five recreational teams that we had that we organized at Bunny Friend in the post-storm era. And some of you worked in that. I see, I see Taylor back here and Andrew and, and these guys put their blood, sweat and tears in the Bunny Friend playground. They were there week after week. We had tutoring ministries that came out of that. So we can't hear about 17 people shot in Bunny Friend playground without asking the question, have we made any difference? Does it matter what we do? I know the volunteers at Rivar Juvenile Detention Center are asking the same thing in the wake of the murder of Kevin, who sat at the table and heard the gospel, who offered his prayer requests, and with whom our teams prayed, and now he is dead and his obituary will soon be on the wall in the office of the Rivar Juvenile Detention Center, if it's not already, along with hundreds of others. I mean, you can't have that happen without wondering, what am I doing? What am I doing? Lest you think that your question is brand new. This passage we've just read, do not be weary in well-doing, for at the proper time you will have a harvest if you do not give up. It was written by the Apostle Paul, who sometimes was depressed he described himself as depressed, sometimes discouraged, often beat up and feeling lonely in his work. And sometimes when he was thrown out of town or thrown in jail, he must surely have asked the question, is it really worth it? 
Should I keep trying to do this good thing I feel called to do, given what's happened? And in the midst of these things, I must tell you, giving up is a Grinch that steals faith and joy and hope. Don't give up on others. Don't give up on others. Don't develop the feeling that the human race is a virus. Some people feel that way. They feel like, you know, are humans really worth saving? Is human life really sacred? Are humans really special? Don't give up on others. The Apostle Paul says here, and apparently there's somebody he's thinking of, probably a specific individual in this church who has been captured by a sin. He's been overtaken in a fault. That's how he describes it. I think it's a gracious way to describe moral failure in the life of a believer. Somebody has really messed up. And Paul says he was overtaken in a fault. Giving him the benefit of the doubt. Not saying of this brother... Look, he just loves his sin. Don't try to help him. He loves his sin. No. Paul's describing this as he is overtaken in a fault. It's not really who he is. He really wants to be a follower of Jesus, but he got trapped. He got caught in a snare. The devil lays these traps. He wants to catch us in a fault. I was hunting one deer season and going along a fence row and came upon a yearling deer that had tried to jump the fence. And as it sailed over the barbed wire fence, its back foot caught the top strand of wire. And when it fell, its, the second strand of barbed wire caught its hoof. And the momentum of the deer pulled it over until it just flipped. And the wire... Two strands of barbed wire were holding its back foot. I wanted to let the deer go, even though it was out there, I guess, trying to kill him, you know. The last time I had one in my sights, I thought, do I really want to shoot this thing and have to clean it and everything? I, so I let it go. <laughs> anyway. And I started to move toward this deer. You know, a, deer, a yearling deer has very sharp hooves. Have you ever seen the track of a deer? You know how pointed the hooves are? They can actually cut you, puncture you, and hurt you. So I was very careful going up to this deer. And I separated the barbed wire and I released that deer that was trapped. Now, this text says, you who are spiritual, okay? Being aware of yourself, restore the one who's been trapped, who's been fallen who's been ensnared by the devil, who's been overtaken with a, a fault, and be careful with yourself so you don't get punctured in the process. Restore is the word katartizo in verse 1. I know, you probably don't know that word, all right? But I love the word! Because it's... It describes James and John when Jesus comes by the Sea of Galilee and they are mending their nets. It's the word katartizo. It's the word for mending. 
Doctors, if your finger goes out of joint and you pull it back into joint, that's katartizo. That's restoring what is out of joint. I grew up helping my father get his knee back into joint. It actually is part of the narrative of my childhood. I remember when he messed his knee up. I was about seven years old and dad was playing softball at a camp in Holly, Minnesota. And he made this turn and when he turned, he stepped in some kind of hole, I don't know what, and he just laid there writhing on the ground. He'd thrown his knee out of joint and somehow it messed up his cartilage. And after that, his knee started coming out of joint more or less regularly. He had four sons, I was one of them, that were big enough to grab his foot when his knee went out of joint. And he'd grab a hold of the piano and he'd say, would you guys just pull on his leg? And we'd grab his leg, the four of us, and we'd pull on his leg till it snapped back in the joint. We are restoring my father's leg. It's just part of my story, all right? Happened over and over again when I was a boy. There are people who get out of joint spiritually. They get out of joint morally. They get overtaken in a fault. It's not who they want to be. It's not who they ought to be. But it's happened to them. And so the instruction to you is, okay, you watch yourself. You be careful. Because this is dangerous work. Spiritually dangerous work. Somebody is in a moral dilemma. They've had a moral problem. We don't want to just leave them there. We don't want to give up on them. We want to say they're not worth fooling with. No. Not everybody can do this. There are some people in this man's life who needs to be restored who are not the ones that actually go to him, okay? His ex-wife may be among those. Or his former girlfriend. Or one of his partners in crime. They may not be the ones to go. So I'm not telling you you're the one to go if you know somebody who has slipped and fallen, okay? Your role may be to pray for that person because you know it's not your place to go. Maybe it's not your place to go and help because you still feel too spiritually vulnerable. And you know that you've got a weakness in your own life. It's a spiritual and moral weakness for you. And it's not your assignment to go and restore this person because you know you're going to be in moral danger if you do. You know what I'm talking about? It's not, it's not your role. But it could be your role to, in a spirit of gentleness and meekness, understanding how vulnerable you yourself are to sin, knowing that it is one sinner helping another, that you could go with the humility of spirit to that person and let them know that God loves them still that you love them still that though they have fallen they can be restored and that you could be the instrument of God to bring that help to them don't give up on people maybe it hasn't happened to you yet but somebody in your life is going to take a terrible moral tumble. And it could be that you are the designated person before God, working in His Spirit to go to them and help them 
restore their, their spirit, their character, and their walk with God. Don't give up on people. Bear each other's burdens. I love this. Carry one another's burdens, he says. So people are burdened. You know and I know that if we could see the spiritual reality, the emotional reality in this room right now, everybody would have burdens on their shoulders. Everybody would. In the early service, a woman told me her mother died over the, over the Thanksgiving holidays and they just had her funeral. You don't lose your mother without having a, a heaviness of soul, a burden. Carry one another's burdens. That means you're available to each other. Young people, available to each other to help one another along the way. Knowing when somebody has been hit, when somebody's suffered a blow, and being able to share that burden with them. Now, there's a lot of joy in loving one another like this. And that's really what it is. You see this phrase, and so fulfill the law of Christ? That phrase is only used here in the Bible, the law of Christ. It is a little bit unusual because the Apostle Paul has been spending the whole book of Galatians telling us that we are not under the law, but under grace, that we don't get saved by the law. We get saved by grace and faith in Christ, that the law cannot bring us into relationship with God. It condemns us. He spent the whole time. And then he comes to this phrase. He says, the law of Christ. And I wonder, what is the law of Christ? I think I know. Because he's just quoted the great commandment. He just quoted it. He just said, love your neighbors, you love yourself. He just did that. And James, the apostle, calls this the royal law. So he calls it a law. I think calling it the law of Christ fits. Because Jesus said, a new commandment I give unto you. This is John 13, 34. What's the new commandment? Love one another as I have loved you so you ought to love one another it's love one another it's love one another deeply from the heart your love's not deep enough okay it's got to go deeper for you to be like Christ it's got to go deeper if you bear one another's burdens you are following the example of Jesus who says bring all your cares to me Lay all your burdens on me. I care for you. Being willing to hear the agony of another soul is a way to say, I care about you. And I'm not going to be focused on my own problems right now. I'm not going to be consumed with my own successes and my own story right now. I'm going to sit here with you and I'll let you talk to me. And I'm not going to interrupt you with my own story. I'm going to hear yours. And when you're done, that person may walk out of that moment and say, I've been to lots of doctors and even psychiatrists, but I never had anybody help me like that person. And you didn't say a word. What'd you do? You just loved them and let them know, I care about you. 
and I'm willing to hear your story. And I'm willing to pray for you. And be present with you. Carry one another's burdens, brothers and sisters. Everybody's got them. Just because you have a burden doesn't disqualify you from helping bear another person's burdens. When you do this, you are loving one another like Jesus commanded us to, and you are following in his footsteps. Don't give up on people with burdens. If you feel like you don't have any, you will soon have them. They will be yours to bear. Carry one another's burdens. And in so doing, you keep the great commandment, the center of our moral obligation. Love God. Love others. In the process, don't give up on yourself either. Don't give up on people and don't give up on yourself if anyone thinks they are something when they are nothing, he says, they deceive themselves. Some people create imaginary personas. And they think of themselves in grandiose ways. What they're really doing is giving up on themselves. They know themselves better than that. They know it's a self-deception. But they don't like who they are. So they create this persona that they think is better. It's a way of giving up on yourself, this grandiose notion of who you are. We attribute to ourselves the best motives in every conflict and attribute to others the worst. We talk about their bad motives and, oh, they only did this because. And not examining our own hearts and really checking out what's going on in us. And like the apostle says here, testing ourselves, checking our motives. Very important to do this. You will never maximize the good work God's called you to do if you don't do it with the right motive. People get fed even if you're angry when you give them beans, right? But it doesn't have the maximum effect for the kingdom. It is much better to love them and to greet them with a smile and to care for them as you give them those beans. Or as you help them in another way we want to love in order to maximize every good thing we do this is true in the family it's so true in a marriage and with children to make it our goal to love with a consuming deep and abiding love as we do our work one with another checking our motives to make sure our motive is love even a teacher can become just an irritating noise to a person in the small group if they're not known for their love. The absence of love changes even true words into just clanging symbols. To communicate that we love maximizes every good thing we do from teaching to preaching to singing to caring to the most practical effort on our behalf to help those who are at the nursing home or prison fulfill the law of love don't give up on yourself you can love more deeply and more fully remember love is more action than noun alright it's more verb than noun 
There's more motion in love than there is emotion. Love is you doing sometimes what is difficult and maybe you find you're doing reluctantly because it's so hard. But you do it because you love. Don't give up on yourself in regard to your motives. It's an important discipline checking why you're doing things. Say, stop comparing yourself to others. It's here in the book. Did you hear it? He said it. Don't compare yourself to others. Why are you doing that? You are a special creation of God. You know this, right? Children, every one of you is a special creation of God. There's nobody on the planet like you. Why is that true? Nobody has your DNA. Nobody has your fingerprints. You are absolutely, totally unique in all the earth. There's nobody like you. Never been anybody just like you. Why? Because God has a very special purpose and assignment for you. And what God wants you to do is recognize your giftedness. It's okay. You can say, you know, I, I can sing. That's good. It's okay for you to recognize that. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, the scripture says. Just think about yourself in the right way. Celebrate your giftedness. Celebrate your talents and your abilities. It's okay. Be grateful for them. Be satisfied that God has given you things that you can do. And your particular assignment as life is something that only you can do and nobody else can do. God has a special mission for you. Don't give up on yourself. Your mission is glorious and great. It's on a very high plane. God wants you to achieve it fully and completely and in every way. He wants you to maximize the mission he's given for you. When you compare yourself to others, even if you think you come off well, it's hard on your soul. You know what I'm saying? Well, I'm better than that person. Oh, Okay, what's that doing to you? I mean, is that pride creeping in? Are you becoming egotistical? Are you becoming self-centered? You compare yourself to somebody else and you think, man, I come off pretty good. I'm sure better than them. That's bad news for you. That's going to sour your disposition. It's going to poison your heart. You don't want that. Maybe you do it the other way. You compare yourself to others and you think, I just don't measure up. I'm just not good enough. That's not good for you either. You don't want to do either one of those things because you were the person God created and he made you especially to be you. I tell staff people when they join this church and join our staff, I tell them, look, you are uniquely gifted. I believe I told Tim this. I might have skipped Tim. No. <laughs> and what I want you to bring to the table, I want you to bring to this discussion your unique perspective, your gifts. I want you to be honest. I want you to share. Because part of what gifted, God has gifted us with is not just your talent to play the guitar, but your perspective, your notion of the kingdom work and the way you see the world. And I want to hear it. It's important to us to know what you're thinking. Everybody brings to the table a unique perspective and a unique mix and they contribute to the team to the community and to the world 
as they celebrate who God has made them and live it out without resenting the giftedness of others or supposing they are better or supposing they are worse. Don't give up on yourself. We live in a world full of comparisons. And what I would say to you is stop comparing yourself to other people. We have one standard. His name is Jesus. All right? And when you measure yourself by Jesus, you're going to come up short. But that's okay. He is the one who made you, and he is enabling you to be more like him and to maximize who you are in the world. And I so want you, young people, young adults, I want you to maximize who God has called you to be in this community because we need you. We need you on task. We need you on point. We need you fully committed to be the person God's called you to be on the mission he's given you to do. We need this in our community. Don't give up on yourself or what you bring to the table. And don't give up on doing good. Let us not become weary in doing good. For at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Apostle Paul knew about harvesting. Maybe you do too. Did you read that the sugarcane farmers in Louisiana, some of them are going to lose 80% of their crop? It's not because it didn't grow. It grew just like it was supposed to. But then the monsoon rains came and the winds came and flattened the crop and their modern harvesting equipment will not pick up the sugar cane and it's a disaster for many farmers in this state. Why do they keep doing it? I mean, 80% of the crop gone? You bought the seed, you bought the fertilizer, you ran those expensive machines up and down that field, you, you Carved it up and plowed it up and spent all the money on diesel and now what? Nothing. Some of them won't even go into the field to harvest the crop. They'll just burn it. Why do you keep doing it? Because there is a principle that always happens in this world. You reap what you sow. You reap what you sow. You reap what you sow. And sometimes you think, some years you think, it's just not going to happen. We lost the crop. That happens. And some people not committed to the principle just give up. Well, I'm not going to do this anymore. The Apostle Paul has used this in a number of ways. This reap what you sow. In one place he uses reap what you sow to talk about giving to the Lord. And he says literally, if you sow financially... You reap a harvest. This is in 2 Corinthians. It's a very interesting passage about giving. And he says it's a principle. You reap what you sow. Now I want you to think about the good deeds. That's what he's talking about here. He takes the principle of reaping what you sow and he talks about doing good. Doing good doing good to your wife, doing good to your husband, doing good to your neighbor, doing good in your community, doing good to those who have hurt you, doing good to those who are your enemies, doing good, the general principle of doing good. And he says to us, don't get tired of it. Don't get tired of it. Everybody's susceptible to being tired. 
we get exhausted, we get worn out. Sometimes we run out of resources. When Janet and I went to Papua New Guinea, they appointed a sociologist to show us around who'd been there 30 years. I'm going to call her Betsy. She had a PhD in sociology, and for 30 years she'd been working in this Stone Age culture. You'd have to see the people to understand. They only lived to be 40 on average. They never invented the wheel. Their hair turns orange. The main thing they have in their diet is sweet potatoes, yams. And Betsy wanted to diversify their diet. And she went into a prolonged process of developing gardens in 12 different places on Papua. This rocky, very precipitous mountains everywhere. She made these gardens. She surrounded them with chain link fence. And she was showing us one of the gardens. And we were in the Jeep with her, Janet and I. And she drove up there. And we look up there. And there's two or three guys up silhouetted, silhouetted against the sky and they appear to be taking down the fence and Betsy jumps out of the jeep and she starts screaming at them you guys you thieves leave that fence alone leave that fence get out of there so these guys saunter off who were taking down the fence and she gets in the jeep and she looks at us and she says I don't know what to do anymore they're stealing the fences. They stole all the fences from all the gardens. She says, I don't know how to help these people. She threw up her hands, literally. I'm giving up. I'm going home. I never saw her after that moment. I don't know if she'd already planned to go home or if this was the last straw that she said... I'm just not going to do this anymore. Or what? She didn't know Christ. She was not a believer. It was evident in her conversation. I talked to her some about Christ. She didn't have that spiritual resource that you have as a follower of Jesus, the calling of God to follow upon your life. But she was trying to do some good in a philanthropic way. And she gave up after 30 years right there in front of me. On the other hand, you have a guy named John Cutts who could be successful anywhere in the world. Does anybody know John Cutts? I'm surprised nobody here does. Freeport McMoran people know him a lot. He's about my age, about Betsy's age. And when you meet him, he is so full of enthusiasm and, and faith and hope for the people of Papua and he's going up and down those trails and walking those mountains and he's reaching out to people and, and when the mission board said, we're not going to fund you anymore, John Cuss went out and he got his own funding so he could stay in this population of people in this primitive culture and continue to do good to them, giving them the gospel, helping them with their needs. He wasn't giving up and he never will. Here's what the scripture says don't give up so the rains took your crop don't give up so today it feels like there seems to be no point don't give up for you are going to reap a harvest 
at the proper time. I'm speaking to some school teacher who is discouraged. You came into the system idealistically thinking you were going to change the world as a school teacher and you're going to change some worlds. I'll tell, I'm telling you, you are. But you sometimes get discouraged. And after two or three years in the system, you realize it's not just the kids I'm fighting. In part, it's the system. And it moves slow. And it's hard to change. And I know that. I'm not saying there's never a time in your life when you need to just cut your losses. I know that's true. Sometimes it is. But I know this. Everybody hits low points where they wonder if they're ever making a difference with anybody. And then God sends somebody along to the preacher's office. And that person says to the preacher, you saved my life today. And you know, maybe there's a thousand deaf ears. But if there's one person listening, it's the harvest God promised. After the first service, Joe McKeever told me about a pastor in this association who gave up one Saturday night. He was so discouraged. It was after Katrina. It was all the hard work. He wrote to every family in his congregation a letter of resignation. Fifty letters in that small congregation. And he put their names on the envelope, he sealed the envelope, and he stamped it, and he put those 50 letters in the mailbox. I am giving up. And after he did it, God began to work in his heart, and he felt so bad about doing it, and he wanted to take it back, and he wanted to do something else. But what do you do? You've just notified 50 families in the congregation that you're quitting. So he went back to that mailbox and discovered that the postage had gone up since he bought those stamps and every one of those letters was postage due and not one of them got sent <laughs> that's grace <laughs> I know you didn't think the postage going up was grace did you <laughs> God works in mysterious ways, his wonders to perform. He's going to take care of you, businessman trying to make a difference. He's going to send somebody your way to let you know the harvest is coming in. School teacher, engineer, physician, lawyer. I know you want to make a difference in your world and God's called you to it. And you have a strategy for how you're going to do it. And everybody sometimes feels like giving up. Sometimes we bought them out. And here's the promise. If you hang in there, if you stay true, if you don't get tired, if you keep doing good, at the proper time, God will give the harvest. Bow with me, please. Father in heaven, Lord, sometimes we sink low. We're just telling you. It's the truth about us. Sometimes we wonder if anybody listens, anybody cares. Sometimes we wonder if we really matter. 
We're confessing this to you, God. Because we need your Holy Spirit to help us understand who we are and what you are up to in the world and what you're doing through us. Holy Spirit, would you confirm in every heart today that the harvest is coming? That we do indeed reap a harvest when we sow? Lord, thank you that you are working this truth out in every person's life here. God, give us perseverance. Give us endurance. Increase our faith. Help us to set our jaw. Help us to square our shoulders today. Help us to go back into the battle with a renewed sense of your presence, your power, and your purpose on our life. Holy Spirit, plunge us again into the water of grace that we might be your people in the world, knowing that not even a cup of cold water we give with a trembling hand to a person in need goes without its reward. Thank you, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.